0: Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast for trial attorneys who want to sharpen their skills and better serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of the Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith.
1: Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Veith. I'm John Simon. We're here today with Alvin Wolf. Hello, Alvin. Hello. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. You're with the firm of Wolf and Wolf with your son Alexander, and I'll just Mentioned a couple things about you. You have handled a ton of personal injury cases in the St. Louis area, numerous jury trials. John and I have known you for years, and we're looking forward to talking to you about an article you wrote about 40 lessons for trial lawyers. Before we start, though, I'd ask you to uh, think of a couple general questions. What inspired you to become a lawyer?
0: My dad practiced law for 58 years in St. Louis, and He always told me it was a noble profession, so I graduated college. My advisor at Washington University said, well, if you go to law school, you're probably gonna flunk out. So I liked the challenge and I went. What advice
1: would you consider the most important to offer a young lawyer today? Keep your
0: eye on the ball and make sure you enjoy your life. What is the thing you most like about being an attorney? I really like making a difference in people's lives. And the longer I practice, which now is 42 years, it seems like the cases get better every year. And the cases I'm working on right now, if I'm successful, it will make a difference in their lives.
1: Let's talk about your article. It appears in Trial
0: Practice, it's a magazine. I think it was published in the Colorado Trial Lawyers Magazine a couple of years ago. And since then, I started writing a book called 40 Lessons in 40 Years. And I got up to chapter 36 about two years ago. Now it's up to 42 Lessons in 42 years. And I'm actually going to be presenting that to the Colorado Trial Lawyers annual meeting in August. Well, let's turn to your article, 40 Lessons Learned from the First
1: 40 Years in Practice. I assume some of these were learned at the School of Hard Knocks.
0: Every one of them is true. There's a personal story behind each
1: one. Why don't we take it from the top? Number one, you never get the full medical record the first time you
2: request it. I agree 100%. I would say sometimes you never get the full record, period. Not just with the first request, but never get the full record.
0: Well, I can think of a shoulder dystocia case, and that's a case where a baby's born and they pull too hard and they injure his arm, that I had the medical record, and finally I went in and took someone's deposition at the hospital, and the x-rays were there. And who would have thought that the folder that the x-rays were in had the word shoulder dystocia written on it, and everyone denied that there was any shoulder dystocia? So that, that's one example of many I can give you.
1: Number two, some defense lawyers have never seen a discovery request that could not be objected to.
0: Canned objections, objection, subject to the objection, blah, blah, blah. It's just crazy. We've had people, defendants,
2: object to us requesting our client's own medical records.
0: How about your client's own statement? <laughs> objection, work product. <laughs> Number
1: three, copy everyone's material, but make it your own with your own style.
0: I remember the first time I had a jury trial, I was appointed on a rape case. And I read an article in Trial Diplomacy Journal written by Jerry Spence, and it was a transcript of one of his four dyers for a rape. And I started using it, and I was asking questions I didn't understand, And I was getting blank stares and I just felt like a complete idiot. So if you're going to use someone's material like John Simon or Nick Rowley or Don Keenan, you got to make it your own.
2: I've seen the defense attorneys do just great job in Bordire. I've literally taken notes and used some of the stuff that they did.
0: Yeah. If you can take the wind out of their sails and they're doing some things to gut your case, take what they did and put it in your next case. Yep.
2: Yep. That's what I did.
0: But you always have to develop your own style and you don't get your law degree and immediately have your own style. It's just something that takes place after a while. Number four, prepare every case for trial. I think that goes without saying, if you take a case and you think you're going to settle it, you're going to be in a heap of trouble if, the case gets called out to trial you just have to do the work i think in my biggest year i tried 20 cases
2: holy cow what 20 cases in a year
0: yeah that was a long time ago man, oh man. that was criminal that was civil that was all sorts of stuff misdemeanor bench trials but you went up with cases and the file was a quarter inch yeah. thick yeah now they're the length of this table nothing simple anymore
2: both of you know george fitzsimmons and he was my mentor. I practiced with him for 10 years. And he tells me all the time in his younger days, he would try some weeks. He tried three cases, three jury trials in a week in different venues, three of them.
0: Most I ever had was two in a week, and it was in front of the same judge. You know, there seems to be a
1: corollary for prepare every case for trial. There's clients that don't want to go to trial. And, and when you first meet them and you're talking about the case, first taking their case on, and... You got to get some sort of indication early on that they understand it could go to trial. But I think the gold standard is convincing them that they want to go to trial. And I've seen that happen as the case is developed and they take their deposition. It seems like when they get through that deposition and they hit the other end and they go, oh, you know, I got to tell my story. It seems like a lot of them say, all right, let's go all the way. But convincing that client that they want to go to trial is so good for you as an attorney to say, good, we're, we're going to go so all the way. So, Alvin, have you had a situation where
2: the client wants to go to trial and you're recommending against it, and you're going to trial against your own better judgment?
0: Yeah, I had one where my client was in a wheelchair, and it was a very tough case in St. Louis County. They had offered a million dollars, and my client wanted more money, and we were able to do a high-low. And I said, you really ought to take this money. We tried the case for five days. The jury came back and gave the non-injured spouse a million dollars on the consortium claim. They gave my client in the wheelchair nothing. The judge said, I can't take this verdict, sent the jury back to deliberate, went to the adjuster and said, I'll take 750 right now because I knew we lost the case. The adjuster makes the phone call comes back and says i got the money and the doctor says i revoke consent to settle it was a very exciting 10 minutes of my life and we ended up getting the low on the high low wow but but really you know you've taught me this that you know if a client insists on going to trial you can say to them i'm going to do whatever you want but i want you to know i think you're wrong that's all you can really do that's it you know, I was trying one in front of Bob Cohn in St. Louis County. It was a dog bite case. We'd been offered $900,000 on a dog bite. And my client insisted she wanted her day in trial. We had punitive damages pled. There was a lot of money, big insurance policy, very wealthy family. And we go to court and my client had OD'd on her fentanyl lollipop that morning. And I'm talking to the jury, you know, how are you going to feel if my client's not here for the whole trial? And I look over at her and her head's tilted back, her eyes are rolled back in her head and she's got this white streak of saliva going from the corner of her mouth to her ear. The judge called a break and she walked out of the door that's reserved for lawyers and she left. (laughs) (laughs) Couldn't find her. (laughs) Stuff happens. Like ever? I prevailed on her to settle the case that night after I found her. Wow.
1: Number five, a client who has been through several lawyers will probably be a client you wish you didn't have. You know,
0: if someone's been through a couple of lawyers, there's a problem. Maybe they have certain needs that you can't meet. The cases I do take are the ones where they say the lawyer won't call me back because there's a lot of lawyers that don't return phone calls and there's a lot of lawyers that don't communicate and these lawyers are walking away from some very good cases. Your clients are people. You have to treat them the way you wanna be treated. My practice is I return every call every day and if someone sends me an email, I send them a response and unless they really invade my space, I let them do whatever they want. They've got my cell phone, Most of them realize that when I'm this responsive, they're gonna give me my days off. They're gonna respect holidays. And, you know, some of them may get liquored up at night and call me at three in the morning just (laughs) because they want to talk.
1: Client control is very important. The few times I let the
0: client control the outcome did not end well. There can be a lot of Indians, but there can only be one chief. And while the client is in control of the outcome, the lawyer has to be driving the bus. I mean, when the client doesn't want to give you certain information saying that's none of your business, you really have to tell them, look, if you're not going to be 100% above board and honest with me, I can't help you because the one thing I can't tolerate are surprises.
1: Number seven, preparing for a deposition with a good development of rules and principles will pay off better than showing up for the deposition
0: and winging it. Well,
1: that seems obvious.
0: It does seem (laughs) obvious, but you know, I was on the phone with a very good lawyer the other day who says, I don't even get prepared for depositions anymore. I just go in and take them. And there's so many good books out there. You got Rick Friedman, you got Pat Malone, you got Kenan's work, you got Nick Rowley's work that you can just sit down with five or six books open in front of you and just get your juices running. We have listservs we can use. I was running rules by a malpractice listserv yesterday, and I got some great ideas and you can start off with just some scatterbrained thoughts and you just throw it out there and people are really going to help you get focused. My son and I do a lot of role playing in the office where He'll say, I'm gonna be taking your deposition and this is who you are. So we'll run the questions and I'll try to throw them off. And you know, you, then you have decision trees. Well, if I get this answer, then I'll follow up with this. If I get this answer, I'll follow up with that. And if you don't do something like that, you may not be able to think that fast when you're in a deposition. Because when you're taking your deposition, you're looking at the witness, you're looking at your notes, you're wondering if anybody can see the sweat under your arms. And you're listening and you're listening. You got a lot of things you're doing at once.
1: I've always made outlines for depositions. When I was young, I did it and I clung to the outline like a, like a life raft. And then later I started and I still make the outlines, but I use it as a checklist afterwards before I end the deposition. I look at my my notes and make sure I covered everything because I want to be listening better when
2: that comes home to roost is fast forward a year and a half and you're getting ready for trial, you're reading the deposition and you know a whole lot more about the case by that time. And you're like, Oh, didn't ask this, you know, wonder what this is, you know, theories change and emerge as you're working up the case and you're like, wow, this is really a good angle. And then you read the depot and you're like, except I don't have any information about
0: it. Yeah. I mean, I've been looking at a deposition I'm taking tomorrow, a vascular surgeon on a death case. I got 14 pages of questions, single spaced, And I haven't even looked at my client's deposition yet to see what I'm going to ask from that. So it's good to have questions. You can ignore them. But if you don't have a plan, it's not going to end well usually. Number eight, when the jury
1: asks for a liability exhibit and buzzes with a verdict within five minutes of receiving the exhibits, take
0: whatever offer is on the table. Amen. True story. Trying a case for a lady who presented at a hospital with a one in a million presentation. It was an arteriovenous malformation that bled in and compressed her spinal cord. And the jury was out for about, I don't know, four or five hours. And the jury asked for three liability exhibits. And I was offered $900,000, which wasn't enough money for the injury. But it was a tough case. And my client said, don't take the money. And I didn't say anything. The jury buzzed in five minutes. I went to the client and said, you lost, take the money. We took the money and it was 12 And I've got that verdict framed on the floor in my office.
1: <laughs> Number nine, defendants sometimes put really damaging information on Facebook and other social media. Perform social media, due diligence as soon
0: as the case is in your office. Let's hear the story. Some of my clients do the same thing. Oh, for sure. One guy said, I just ran over someone on a tractor. I think I'm going to go to jail and I'm sitting here getting drunk right now. That was a good one. I had one that was titled Getting Ready for Work. This guy was just taking a big hit off of a big spleef reefer where you just see him (sighs) blow it out to the music. And then he (laughs) runs over my client on his motorcycle. My favorite one was, I'm getting ready to have my favorite drink a lot. And he was in a car wreck that (laughs) night with my client. So you have to go onto social media. And a lot of people don't have their privacy settings on so it's wide open. Even after they get sued, their lawyers don't tell them to put on their privacy settings and they continue to post stuff.
2: I'll tell you the advice I give to my clients when I meet them for the first time. I ask them, do they use an iPhone, iPad, laptop, whatever it is for the social media stuff? And I tell them, what I need you to do is is go home, take your laptop, fill the bathtub up and put it in the bathtub in the water. (laughs) and don't replace it until after I'm (laughs) done working on your case. And I tell every one of them that, and you know, they all laugh. And I say, well, you know, I'm kind of serious about it because about half of the clients do not listen on that issue. At least half. I had a, a guy who was in an accident. His car rolled it blew out his knee. Terrible injury. It wasn't disputed. But he was a professional wrestler and he gave a deposition, did a good job. I mean, his knee was blown out and he had surgery and it was on local cable one night, about a month or two before the trial, and I was flipping. And there I saw my client in the ring. I knew it was after the accident, because he had a big brace on his leg. <laughs> yeah. Right when I flipped to that channel, he was on the turnbuckle on the top he <laughs> <laughs> dove off onto the other guy. And he won the match. I mean, he beat the heck out of this guy. I was really worried about it when I saw that, but I went back and read his deposition, and there's nothing that he said in his deposition that was really inconsistent with that. Give him credit. He did have the brace on. I mean, he had the knee brace on. (laughs) Gave him credibility. Yeah, yeah. So we did settle it, and I'm not sure to this day whether the
1: defense attorney was a local wrestling fan or not. Number 10, one good lay witness is better than any family member's.
0: Yeah. Lay witness has no dog in the hunt. So we try to get people that I call move the money witnesses to know the client before and after and just have them come in and talk about the person. And hopefully they'll be able to come up with an anecdote that will ring true with the jury that will help you. I mean, family members all want to see their parent, child, spouse do well.
2: I like that. Move the money witnesses. What if all you got are family witnesses? How do you so got to have some kind of acquaintance
0: or friend or something? Well, you go to their house and you got to sit with your client. Or they say, oh, I don't have any friends. You go there and you look at the pictures on the wall and you look in their scrapbooks and you find out who they are because they always have someone, always. Well, maybe not always, but most of the time.
1: Number 11. Make your case about what the defendant did wrong rather than what random event injured your client.
0: Yeah, that's just Don Keenan edge stuff and everybody else who's written in the last 10 years, you want to tell your case from the defendant standpoint, because from what John was saying, you want the verdict decided on a motion and you got to present your case in such a way that when you tell someone about your case, you want them to say, Holy shit, I hope that never happens to me because if they say, well, that's too bad, go get another case. You got to make it about the defendant is somehow a threat to everybody and everybody includes the people on the jury.
1: How emotional do you typically get while you're giving a closing argument?
0: I'm as flat as a person on Thorazine. I just, I I don't know. For some reason I, I wish I could get emotional but I don't. I may get emotional in rebuttal, but I really try to stay even-tempered.
2: It's who you are.
0: Yeah. Right. It's It's like you were
1: saying earlier, you got to be yourself. I have a theory about that. It's if you get emotional in a gathering, it's almost like it keeps the other people from feeling the emotion. I'd rather be flat. I'd rather be educational and let them hear the facts and then let them figure out what they mean. I kind of get emotional. There's a point where you got to ride the wave, and I think Rick Friedman talked about that, there's a point where you gotta make sure you're reading the room right where it's appropriate. You gotta build the case and then the emotions work. Do you do this consciously? Do you think about No, not consciously
2: it? at all. I, I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve normally. You know, I just uh I'm an emotional person. I get worked up about all kinds of stuff. I'm the guy riding the elephant blindfolded. <laughs> <laughs> I saw your Jonathan Height reference yesterday. We had a, a slide of Jonathan Height's metaphor about the you know the 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 logical side of the brain being the rider of an elephant the emotional side being the elephant and we think we control the elephant until the elephant gets scared or angry and then we're just along for the ride that's me i'm a rider traveling on the top of the elephant
1: number 12. if you act like you know what you're doing the court will probably let you get away with
0: it you know when i was in my 20s and 30s i couldn't get away with anything And now that I've had my teeth kicked in numerous times, I just go do it. Most of the time I get away with it. I think of this moment that happens often during, I'll
1: say emotion, because it's a contained hearing where the judge might not know you, but if you present the case fairly, if you give the other side its due, and you present evidence in an orderly way that's ringing true, and you have maybe some charts and exhibits to let the court know what's going on that they don't, have too much cognitive load, you're not pulling them down with dates and other unnecessary detail, but they're, they're starting to feel like you know what's going on. And, and then in the back and forth where the judge has a question, I like to notice where they're looking, who they're asking that question to. And if they look at you, it's a great feeling. It's like, I think I have the court's trust.
0: You really have to believe what you're saying. And if you believe it, chances are you're going to get away with it. 13
1: when you need a doctor on your side be really nice to the doctor's assistant
0: they are the keys to the kingdom if you are nice to these people and a lot of people aren't nice to them because i didn't get my prescription refilled you just got to say look i know your job's hard i need your help so that i can do my job and help my client can you help me I mean, if you need to send them flowers, if you need to know their name and call them by name, you know, come in, give them your card, give them some chocolate. Be nice. Yeah. Be nice. It's not hard to be nice, especially if you want something.
1: (laughs) (laughs) You know, there's an analog there to the clerk of a court same thing they have eyes and ears and i assume they go back and if you're being obnoxious in the courtroom when the judge isn't there they're going to tell the judge
0: and it's the bailiff and it's the court reporter it's the whole backup for the judge during a
1: trial a couple years ago a a bailiff he was genuinely a nice guy it wasn't hard to be friendly with this fellow but by the i think the third day of trial he brought in he was a deer hunter and he brought in some deer sausage and he gave the attorneys samples during a break you know there's no reason not to be
0: developing real relationships in the middle of a trial. And the other thing is, these people can send you cases, even if you're not looking for it. If a court clerk sees you do a great job, they're gonna see people that really need lawyers. And, you know, first they'll go to John and then they may come to me.
1: (laughs) 14, if the opening statement you
0: give is your first draft, it's way too long and way too confusing. So I taught opening statements for Don Keenan at his Keenan trial college for about eight years. And I would have lawyers for two days, eight lawyers, and they'd give me their opening statements. And I remember one year, I probably edited 40 opening statements for lawyers. I'll go through 10, 12 drafts before I give it. And I want my opening to usually be about 10 or 12 minutes. And I've seen things that are such a mess and so much stuff in there that is just going to be confusing. If you ever read E.B. White's book, The Elements of Style, omit needless words, omit needless sentences, paragraphs, everything. Just give them a bare bones approach to what your case is.
2: One of the youngest lawyers in our office at the time, this was a couple of years ago, three years ago, he was trying his first case where he was first chair. Pat's his name. And I happened to be in the office. It was a Sunday, and his case was going out the next day. And he came by my office, and Pat said, hey, John, do you have some time? Can you listen to my opening? He was ready to give his opening. I sat in the conference room down the hall, and I listened to him give his opening, and it was about 40 minutes. I quit taking notes after about four or five minutes, and he got done. And I just said, Pat, right at about the four and a half minute mark, just stop. Just stop. It was part of the first four and a half minutes or everything that he needed to say. And the other was just stuff that they were going to hear in
1: the evidence at trial. Number 15, start working on your opening, your closing,
0: your voir dire when you start learning about your case. I have three folders on all my cases where I'm just making notes and throwing them in there. If I see something or I, I have an analogy or I hear something, I just throw it in there and then I've got it. Because you know you have thoughts and if you don't write it down, that thought's gonna pass and you're gonna forget about it. Alvin, I've been doing what you
2: suggested in 15 for my entire career. I have, first thing, I have a shadow file for each file and I keep it close by and I put four folders, opening, close, issues, and to do. And that's what I do. Cause you know, you're driving to work and you'll see something, it'll remind you of a case. You'll see something on a car and I'll uh, dictate it into my phone, print it through a copy of it in the folder. It comes to you when it comes to you, or it comes to me when it comes to me. So yeah, I wouldn't be able to function without doing that.
0: And you want the issues you bring up in Vordire to trickle through your opening and come back to it in your closing. So if you've got it going early, it's gonna be much easier to tie it together. I use Microsoft Word's
1: outline feature. I put everything into something I call to do, and it might be uh, sections called closing argument or dire or, or themes of the case, and investigation, everything. And it's just it, it tree structures within the document. And then I combine that with the person who emails me more than anyone else is me. And so I'm sitting around thinking of an idea. I email it to myself and I make sure it gets into the outline at the end of the day. But it just grows. And I would echo what you both say. If you don't grab those thoughts when they occur to you, they're lost. They just disappear. Number 16, a good mediator is hard to come by. Most mediators don't work the case among the
0: parties like they should. Had so many failed mediations. The most recent one that sticks out to me, I told my opponent, if you're not going to make a significant offer, I don't want to come to mediation. And the mediator called me up and said, you know, do me a favor and just show up. I'm going to get this settled. So I think I paid the mediator 4,000 bucks to get him on board. The offer I got was $5,000 at the mediation. And I was pissed. I said to the lawyer, what are you doing this for? Don't you have enough stuff to bill on that you need to waste everybody's time?
1: Number 17, we've already discussed making friends with the court clerk. 18,
0: visit the scene of the accident. You got to go to the scene of the crime because if all you're doing is looking at it on Google Maps or Google Pictures, you're not going to see the nuances of maybe signs that are up there. You may see something that will be critical to your case, and you're also going to get some perspective on it. There's nothing like 3D and be in there.
1: I agree. I think these diagrams on police reports or maps Don't show you elevations and and you don't get a sense of the expanse of the scene. And they're wrong.
0: And the police reports are wrong. They got the wrong direction. They're checking the wrong boxes. I mean, these guys are thinking, oh, more paperwork. And they do it fast and they're sloppy. And one thing I'm having my clients do now is as soon as I get the report, I have them read the report. And if there's any errors, I have them send a letter to the department and ask that it be appended to the report. Because... I think in a deposition, if they're saying the report's wrong, if they didn't say anything about it in advance, they're kind of screwed. No question. And it's the same thing with medical records. If you see something in a medical record that the client says that never happened, have them send a letter to the doctor and have them put it in the chart, because then at least they're trying to correct it. They can't remove the record. The record's not going to get rewritten, but at least they're going to have a chance because, you know, in these cases, the client doesn't get to put anything in the records. Nor do they ever see what's put in the records. Right. Yeah. And a lot of it, the nurses are just pushing buttons and sometimes they can hit the wrong button. It's incredible. You get these 5,000 page medical charts and there's probably only 50 pages of original stuff. I don't know who reads your stuff, but I touch every page and No, we do med mail cases, especially I look at every medical record you have. to, And I'm making them print them out. You can't read a record on a computer. You got to have it. You got to put stickers on it. You got to put a highlighter on it. You got to touch it, because if you don't touch it, you're not looking at it. I
1: use Acrobat Pro. It's awesome. And and I've, I've gone to creating tons of bookmarks about annotating the record and I make sure they're all OCR and then I can put my own notes on the pages too. Uh So it starts to work more like paper that way where you can actually word search your own thought processes within the record now.
0: Well, we'll take the pro and we'll put all the records from various providers in one document, bait stamp the whole document. And then when it's OCR'd, you can just scan it for whatever term you're looking at. Right, It's phenomenal, phenomenal program. I recommend everybody get it if you don't have it. Yeah, agreed.
1: 19, never call what happened to your client an accident. Eric, you just violated that on 18th. You said it too. Did I say it too? You said it. My client
0: was in an accident. The knee, the wrestler.
2: the knee. You're right. The occurrence, the crash.
0: The wreck. Because an accident makes it sound like, oops, it's an accident. It's nobody's fault. And worse than losing a case outright is having a jury come back on a fall down with zero, zero fault. Oh, it was an accident.
1: Number 20. Most judges forget about foreseeability. Don't let that occur. Foreseeability is a great setup
0: for your case. If it's foreseeable, it can happen. And you got to get the foreseeability in there. And they're going to push back with hindsight, right? Right. Hindsight's 20. Well, you know, what are all the possible things that can happen? Looking at it before it happens. You're going to go in and do a surgery. Your client can be bleeding. You can perforate something. You can cut something. It's all something that can happen. It's all something that needs to be explained to your client. And it's got to be foreseeable, because if it's not foreseeable, then it's going to be an accident.
1: Alvin, that was 20. That was fun. We got 20 more. So we're going to take a pause here and we're going to have you back on a separate episode for the next 20. You
0: guys sure you want to put up with me for another 20? No. Yes, no. <laughs> <laughs> no yes. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much.
1: <laughs> so uh, we'll see you on the next episode with 20 more. Thanks for joining us this time. Thanks for having me. This has been another episode of The Jury Is Out. I'm Eric Beef. I'm John Simon. See you next time.
0: The Jury Is Out is brought to you by The Simon Law Firm, Share your thoughts with John and Eric at comments at thejuryisout.law. And subscribe today, because the best lawyers never stop learning.